This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to welcome you again to another broadcast. I want to talk a little bit about how funny it is to me that President Trump has been now nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in light of the fact that Barack Obama received it for doing absolutely nothing. I just find this incredibly ironic because here we have the president of the United States securing a historic deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates to advance peace in the region, as the White House says. Obama did nothing. And it's just it's funny to me. It's funny to me. I don't really know how things will go down when all is said and done. But I wonder how much credence will really be given to the advances that Trump has made for world peace. Now, I say that, of course, being a Christian understanding, we will never have total final world peace, but you can have limited amounts of peace and limited capacities at different points in history. And I certainly hope there will be peace for Israel in the foreseeable future. But this is very interesting. Christian Tybring Jetty, who leads Norway's NATO delegation, did an interview with Fox News because he was the one who told the Nobel Committee in his nomination that this particular deal could precipitate several other peace deals between Israel and other countries in the region. He actually called this a game changer for the Middle East, according to the Washington Examiner. I want to play a little bit of what this man had to say about why he nominated Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize. This is cut one. He has done what Alfred Nobel uh, said he was supposed to do if you want to get the Peace Prize. In Alfred Nobel's will, he's stating three three conditions. Uh, The first one is uh, fellowship among nations. And he has done that uh, through uh, all these uh, uh, negotiations between nations. Uh, it's reduction of standing armies. He has reduced the number of troops in the Middle East. And the third criteria is promotion of peace congresses. And his latest uh, effort, which re- resulted in the peace between the UAE and Israel, is a tremendous effort. And this could be uh, to inspiration for other Arab nations to make peace with Israel. It's really worth the Nobel Peace Prize. It makes me wonder how much of Trump's motivation really was proving what a president can do for the cause of peace when he's not just given an award for showing up the way Barack Obama was. I mean, that was ridiculous. You remember that back in 2009? That was ridiculous that Barack Obama received the Nobel Peace Prize. Absolutely ridiculous. So at any rate. Why is this recent effort concerning Israel and the UAE's diplomatic relations so significant? This was something else that this Norwegian politician answered. This is cut to. If you look at the, the history of the Middle East uh, and, uh, and Israel, it's been also a hostile uh, conditions for uh, as, as long as you can remember. And um, if, you, if you know the history, you know the, you know the conditions both in the Arab world and, and in Israel. And uh, and you look at the other um, the other people who have gotten the uh, peace prize. They have doing the Oslo Accord as we're de- dealing in the Middle East, and also the Camp David Agreement 
1979 is also dealing with the uh, peace efforts in the Middle East, meaning that it's a very, very important region in the world. And all efforts that leads to peace in that region should be awarded with a Nobel Peace Prize and also for Donald Trump. Well, interesting. Front Page Mag actually had a good article on why Trump deserves the Nobel. And I thought I would reference this just a little bit because this is something that is very significant. And and people need to understand the brokering of this peace deal is a big deal. As they point out, the UAE becomes now the third Arab nation to forge normalized ties with Israel after Egypt in 1979 and then Jordan in 1994. But the agreement, which has been called the Abraham Accord, pays the way for normalized relations with other Arab countries, including the Gulf states of Oman and Bahrain. Saudi Arabia and Bahrain have since announced that they will open their skies to Israeli commercial traffic, signaling further detente with the Arab world. And the peace agreement forged between Israel and the UAE is unique for three reasons. Now, you heard some of those reasons in the comments that I just played for you, but it is the first peace agreement between Israel and an Arab party in which Israel was not required to cede land. And that's been, as you know, the bugaboo of Palestine for how how many years now? So this sets a positive precedent. Secondly, it demonstrates that peace with the Arab world at large is not contingent upon progress on this Palestinian track. And third, there appears to be broad support among the UAE's citizenry for the accord. So they're for it, unlike the peace agreements that were forged with Egypt and Jordan, which were largely government to government understandings, and they were characterized by a cold peace. There appears to be a genuine undercurrent of warmth between the Israeli and Emirati people. So this was monumental. As they point out, this foreign policy achievement by itself was monumental, they say. Even New York Times op-ed writer and fierce Trump critic Thomas Friedman gave Trump an enthusiastic nod of approval, characterizing the breakthrough as a geopolitical earthquake. Well, will the Nobel Committee see it the same way? Now, there's something else that is significant when it comes to Trump trying to achieve peace in the world. And one other thing that this... A Norwegian parliament uh, member had mentioned, Christian Tybring Jetty, was Trump's work in North and South Korea. This is cut three. Donald Trump was the first one uh, to be able to talk to the North Korean leader. And uh, I think he has, a, uh, let's say, an uh, undiplomatic way of getting in touch with people and talk to people. And in this uh, instance, it's what a good thing. And also South Korea and North Korea, they could talk together and he's willing to, to uh, get rid of uh, North Korea's nuclear weapons. And I think Trump is, uh, had started on that effort. And I think he's uh, uh, the first one to do that. I know that the former South Korean leader just got this uh, peace, uh, uh, peace Prize just by talking to North Korea. Here is actually talking to both of them and getting to talk to each other. And I think that's uh, honorable. And it's actually uh, an achievement. It is an achievement. Something else Front Page Mag points out is what's gone on with the Balkans. This is something else because this was just a few days ago. The administration announced this deal between Serbia and Kosovo. This is centered on economic cooperation involving multiple industries and the understanding benefits both nations and also fosters business opportunities for outside investors, both from Europe and the U.S. As they say, the bitter enmity existing between Serbia and Kosovo spans 21 years after Serbs and Kosovars fought a particularly vicious war in which both sides inflicted brutality on the other 
together and thousands were killed. This is, I mean, this is a big deal. The multilateral deal had other positive ancillary implications as well. As part of the agreement, Serbia agreed to move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and Kosovo, which had no relations with Israel, agreed to open an embassy in Jerusalem there. And in so doing, Kosovo becomes the first Muslim majority nation to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You don't think that Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, there are people who will never want Trump to get anything good. They just want him out of office. The resistance, the resistance. But my my kidding me comment comes from people like this former Nobel secretary who said, well, you know, Obama didn't really do anything when we gave him the award. I go back to the story from 2015 and it says Aguirre Lundestad told AP that the committee had hoped the award would strengthen him. Oh, is that why we give peace prizes? Maybe if we give him the Peace Prize in, a, in an advance way, he'll live up to it. That was exactly why they did it. And what's really funny is I came across this other story in the New York Post, and this was from actually November 2nd, 2019. And it, again, they're quoting this Nobel insider, Geer Lundestad, who put out a book about this whole thing. And he said, uh, Obama did not do much before winning, but he represented the ideals of the committee. And when we have an American president who supports that message, we like to strengthen him. Same words. He also said, though, that he doesn't believe that Trump will ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, I I think that that's maybe true. I think it might very well be true that he will not receive the Nobel Peace Prize because if you have a committee that is awarding prizes to strengthen people who actually were involved in quite a bit of war and conflict and never did anything substantive to bring about peace in the Middle East or anywhere else, why would they give it to Trump? I mean, has the Nobel Committee become such a joke that any prize they actually distribute to anybody means absolutely nothing? I I could see making an argument for that. But this is funny. This Lindestad guy was saying as early as last fall, Trump hasn't really done anything. I mean, he hasn't really done anything in the Middle East. He hasn't done anything on the Korean Peninsula. Well, what are you saying now, Mr. Lindestad? Again, I'm not sure that Trump will ever get that award, but in my view, he certainly deserves it. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light gives his thoughts on the scourge of abortion. One of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. And that's why Kevin Sorbo also supports preborn. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Will you join us in the cause for life? By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561, 855 855- Five six five twenty five sixty one. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. The supermajority Democrat legislature in California has just concluded its session, and you will not believe some of the terrible bills that have passed. Perhaps the worst, SB 145. This is the bill authored by a homosexual activist state senator that, if signed into law, would exempt sexual predators who target minors as young as 14 from having to register as sex offenders. It's absolutely outrageous, and we're going to get an update now on that and some other California bills from Randy Thomason, who is president of SaveCalifornia.com. Randy, so great to talk to you again. Well, hello, my sister and Jesus. Glad to talk to you again, Janet. Yeah, glad you're here. I'm sorry you're in California. Can I say that? <laughs> oh, my, <laughs> yeah. but I'm glad you're there. Tell us about this SB 145, because I saw this coming a, a number of months ago. I had heard about this story and was hoping the bill would die, but tell people what this is all about. Well, First of all, this bill is so bad that when it was introduced last year, it was stopped by the Democrats because law enforcement came out big time against it. It was dead last year. So it was only revived this year when the Democrat politicians were convinced by the homosexual, transsexual activists, because that's what the author is. Scott Weiner is a state senator. He's a homosexual activist. And he's a Democrat, of course, and uh, he convinced them to uh, that uh, LGBTQIA plus is more important uh, for children who are molested. Ugh. It's terrible. It is terrible. Well, one of the things that he's been out there saying, because people have criticized this as being pro-pedophilia, there, there has to be this, you know, minors as young as 14 as young as 14, can apparently have interaction with a 24-year-old under this bill, and that would be okay. But he says, oh, no, it's not pro-pedophilia. We're just, you know, making it even. So if you had a heterosexual situation and those people didn't have to be registered as sex offenders, you should make it the same for people who engage in homosexual behavior. Is that really the case, or is he kind of spinning it a little bit? Well, here's what's really going on. Um you know, for more than a hundred years, what the bill exempts uh, from um, sex offender laws has been the law. Um, but a um, the in California, um, and I won't get uh, graphic here, but um, with uh, regular intercourse, um, an adult. Uh, with a, a teenage girl, and if he uh, impregnates her, they're not. He's not required to register. 
Right. Now, I'd like that to be uh, a law that there would be uh, he, a, a sex offender for a heterosexual impregnation of a teen. Right. However, uh, the the Democrat author points out and says, oh, that's so unfair, so let's not let uh, let's not say we have to uh, have uh, a sex offender law for our side. Well, sorry, that's just another green light, a big green light to say to uh, especially homosexual molesters, and those are the molesters of boys, especially, of course, uh, to say, well, okay, look, there's not much punishment here. Let me just read to you briefly. The California Statewide Law Enforcement Association, which was put together to oppose this bill, and it says SB 145 exempts persons convicted of non-forcible voluntary sodomy with a minor, oral copulation with a minor, or sexual penetration with a minor. So that's the icky part. Uh, And then... They say, from having to automatically register as a sex offender if the person wasn't more than 10 years older than the minor at the time of the offense. According to the Child Advocacy Center, one in three girls and one in five boys are sexually abused before the age of 18. Mm. Additionally, approximately 20% of victims of sexual abuse are under the age of 8. This is absolutely unacceptable as Californians and law enforcement partners who are on the front lines called to sexual assault and domestic violence cases. Laws like SB 145 will only enable pedophiles to prey on children closer to their age. End quote. I thought they said it quite well. Well, right. That's exactly what's going on. And I saw some of the footage. One of the other lawmakers, Lorena Gonzalez, I believe her name is, stood up and was outraged by this. And she said, this is enabling predators. I mean, a 24-year-old and a 14-year-old, that's predation. Right, right. Because um, you think about it. Um, Hugh Hefner uh, invented the Playboy stuff. And pornography is what it, it does. And then they, the, the men will lust, and they will see a little boy or a little girl and say, well, let me satisfy my lust right now. Maybe no one can find out about it. Well, here's the point. That's why sex offender laws were created. Sure. One, that there would be public accountability. Two, that there would be a well-deserved stigma that says this person has an addiction which they probably haven't recovered from, your children are at risk. You need to know who these people are. Well, fast forward to today. If SB 145 is signed into law by Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom, it would mean that there would be more sexual predators in your neighborhoods that you don't know about. And I'll tell you, it's not going to be enough to drive your children to a government school. You're not even going to be allowed to let them go into the out the front door for one minute. I mean, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. It is terrible. Are all the signs pointing toward Governor Newsom signing this into law, or what's the status? Well, he has um, time on this, but uh, he's got to the end of the month to decide whether to sign or veto SB 145. We're encouraging visitors to SaveCalifornia.com, our website. We've got a message you can send when you call or email Governor Gavin Newsom. We think there's a chance for a veto because, look, 
He's subject right now to a big effort to try to recall him, to put him on the ballot, to kick him out of office. Now, that's a volunteer effort, and it's not going to succeed without a multimillionaire from uh, probably a retired Christian from another state (laughs) funding the rest of it. And I do invite that if you're listening right now, because it's a great volunteer effort. It just needs an extra push over the finish line. However, he knows there's a lot of opposition to his egregiously tyrannical, unconstitutional, unscientific lockdown and mass <sighs> mandates. So he knows he's sort of in the tank with a lot of Californians who are also sick of having wildfires monster fires be the new normal and they saying, hey, look, we used to not have this. What's happened? Well, they see the rise of the three-quarters controlling Democrats in both houses of the state legislature and an uber-liberal named Gavin Newsom, the former mayor of San Francisco, who is a law unto himself. And so there's a lot of dissatisfaction in California. They can only point to who's in charge. And so uh, there might be a chance that he uh, vetoes if he gets enough calls or emails. He does have the bill uh, uh, as one of the bills he's highlighted uh, when you are on his web form. You can actually choose the bill because uh, he knows about it already. Good. So our listeners in California then go to SaveCalifornia.com. You can get that information right about contacting the governor's office. Right. Just go to SaveCalifornia.com and then uh, click legislation. Okay. And you will get right there and just focus on SB 145. We'll tell you exactly what to do. It's very simple and easy, but only you can do it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I want to get to, because I know we're going to run out of time, Randy, and I got to get to this one as well. This LGBT activism that has been so out of control in California, especially in among your lawmakers, also have introduced this AB 2218, which would create the Transgender Wellness and Equity Fund, supplying pure puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, as I understand, for minors and cross-sex hormones and sex change operations for adults. Tell us about this, Bill, because, again, this is just radical activism at its finest. Well, in brief, you've described it accurately. It's, uh, be- it would be funded, except for the lockdown, because the state is not getting uh, uh, the taxes anymore. Yeah. So, um, But in a future legislature, it would be funded because the Democrats are beholden to the LGBTQIA plus agenda. Of course, there's no gay gene. It's not natural. Right. If you say what is natural, marriage is for a man and a woman, or male is male, or female is female, they call you a hater, and we say, hey, look, forget the diatribe here. Um, Let's just go with the science. Why don't we get out a nurse's textbook here about (laughs) um, chromosomes? You know, they don't want to do that. So it's, it's, but that, and and the main Senate co-author, the principal co-author is the same um, man from San Francisco, if he thinks he's a man, that is, um, Scott Weiner. Uh, this okay. is a replacement for Mark Leno. You might remember that name. Mark mm-hmm. Leno was at the at tip of the spear for the homosexual, transsexual activists, but they came from San Francisco. They come from the same group. I mean, we've got a picture of Scott Weiner, the author of um, SB 145 and the principal co-author of AB 2218. Um, in a homosexual street fair, he's uh, shirtless and wearing interesting straps of leather yes. across his chest. He is a true activist. Obviously, we need to have the uh, polar opposite. True biblical Christians go into uh, government so that they can love 
the children and families. You know, this is the thing, Randy. I have been really pounding that drum lately because I said, you know, we get sometimes the lawmakers we deserve if people are not involved and Christians are not involved in politics or running for office. Why would we be surprised that we get horrible people running for office and acting this draconian and totally immoral legislation? Are you seeing any interest there in California in conservatives and Christians doing more to get involved in politics to replace some of these terrible lawmakers? I'll tell you, I haven't seen um, conservative activism like I'm seeing now in 20 years. People are so fed up. They're holding rallies and protests. And this is a broad spectrum of conservatives, but there are a lot of professing Christians involved. And I do believe because of the pain, people do want change. It's too bad that most uh, uh, churches today uh, have pastors who teach comfort and pleasure Uh, We need to have holiness, and uh, pain is gain. And so uh, we need to uh, have um, go into the government, because I thought about this. Um, You get love from the Bible. Um, People don't love when they go into politics. A lot of them, it's just uh, people, most politicians want fame status, power, money, but they don't love. So That's right. Christians love. That's why they need to be in, in government. Good deal. Randy Thomason, check out SaveCalifornia.com. Thanks a lot, Randy. Great to talk to you, and we'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, when it comes to the discipleship of children, as we know, family plays an incredibly important role. As Psalm 145.4 says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Now, normally when we think about discipling children, we think of the role of the parents. But even when speaking to the children of Israel about their required obedience to God, Moses told them to make God's rules known to your children and your children's children. So, What role do grandparents have to play in the spiritual growth of their grandchildren? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Josh Mulvihill, who is Executive Director of Church and Family Ministry of Renewination, where he equips parents and grandparents to disciple their families. He's also served as a pastor for almost 20 years, and he's here today to talk about his book, Discipling Your Grandchildren. Josh, just great to have you with us. How are you? Thanks, Janet. I'm doing wonderful. That is wonderful. And this is a great subject because there are a lot of grandparents who I know have had a huge spiritual impact on their grandchildren, but we don't often formally discuss the role of grandparents doing discipleship. Why do you think that is? Well, they're backstage figures for a lot of parents, and they've uh, been definitely undervalued by our culture and churches. And so, They've kind of been placed on the periphery, and so as a result, uh, they've kind of they're kind of the I call them the forgotten members of the family, and it's time that we begin to re uh, understand what God says about grandparents and um, 
open the door, open the gate, so that grandparents can do what God's tasked them with. And so it's uh, we've it's been fun. We've seen a, a quite a, a, an awakening across the country with grandparents as they've begun to uh, re-understand their role, and churches have begun to uh, engage with grandparents in ways that they had not previously. So it's good. Yeah, it is really good. I was thinking about that verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your Mm -hmm. mother Eunice now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. I mean, there are a lot of verses when you go and you look at some of the verses about grandparents and handing down the faith through generations. There are more verses pertaining to grandparents having an emphasis on spiritual growth in their grandchildren than I even realized. I knew some of the key passages, but I was looking through the commentary. I said, wow, there really are a lot of references to this. Yeah, there's there's a ton. Uh, if you look for the word grandparent or grandparenting, you'll only find it a couple times based on the translation, the, the version you use. But uh, the Bible uses different terminology like children's children and son's son and father's father's father. So yes, yeah, you go and look up any of those terms and suddenly you go, wow, the Bible actually references grandparents a couple hundred times. Uh, and uh, that actually was the focus of my uh, my dissertation when I started to explore that. I uh, went, wow, there uh, there's a lot here. And so, yeah, God, God has a lot to say to grandparents. They're extremely important in family discipleship. In fact, uh, Barna did a study and found that they were the number two influence spiritually for children, uh, that they were more impactful than teachers, than peers, than pastors. It doesn't minimize those influences, but, um, and then, you know, you start to think about, well, how could that be? And my, um, my opinion is that, you know, who has a presence in a child's life from their earliest days into their adulthood years, assuming that um, God blesses the grandparent with long life, and um, there are very few people outside of the family for young people, so I just think it's, it comes down to time and yeah. longevity of time. Yes, yes, that's so important. And, I, you know, I'm sure there are many people in the listening audience, myself included, who could say, oh, my, my grandmother was so wonderful and she prayed mm-hmm. for me all the time. You know, you think about the role of grandparents a lot when it comes to prayer. At least that's anecdotally, that's what I hear from a lot of people. My grandmother was mm-hmm. just a prayer warrior. But you're talking in your book about a lot of other things that grandparents can be involved in pertaining to the discipleship of their grandchildren. Where would you begin if you were to tell grandparents here's how you can start getting involved in your grandchildren's life for the purpose of discipleship. Yeah, it, well, with grandparenting, it takes two to tango. Um, unlike, you know, with parenting, you, you've got the direct access to a child. So I'm not a grandparent. I'm, I'm a father of five. Um, so I'll just speak from my life personally. We sat down with my children's grandparents, and uh, just, I call it the talk, and we just simply had a conversation about, uh, here's how we parent, here's what we're trying to accomplish from what we understand the Bible's asking us to do as parents, um, and here's some ways you could be involved. And of course, that assumes that grandparents and parents are kind of generally in the same um, ballpark as far as their their goals and their outcomes and how they see life. Um, I find that's about 25 to 33% of families uh, for those families that, um, you know, for whatever reason, there's an adult child not walking with the Lord, or 
Um, they're just in different places, relational tensions, whatever else, uh, a lot of challenges. Um, then the goal, of course, is to repair the relationship um, or to, um, you know, we need to get on the same page before we can be working towards the same goals. And yeah. so, um, of course, that, you know, there's that's a big subject in and of itself. <laughs> and, um, you know, prayer is an important piece of that in, in, uh, in, in what we, we have, what we call grandparents at prayer groups, um, which we uh, help grandparents in that arena supporting and praying for. Um, but as far as um, some really practical things that could be done, um, we do what we also call grand camps. So um, this could be at your home for a weekend or at a, uh, we have locations across the country that uh, grandparents can gather with their grandkids and just spend time together uh, and then become intentional in that. Um, so there's uh, the book you're referencing has a couple hundred ideas. I just scratched the surface on a couple, but there are um, there are just tons of ways, and you know it's it's really it's Deuteronomy six. Yes. So yes. as you go through life with your grandchildren, whether you get a little time every year because they're long distance, or whether you know they're down the road and you get to see them pretty regularly, um, there's all these kinds of opportunities. And once we understand our role and become serious about it, then we begin to um, seize those opportunities as they come. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, fun to, it's been fun to just help grandparents engage. And the relational fruit that comes uh, just brings so much value to both grandchildren and grandparents. Yes. So, Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's so important. I think that's a great idea to sit down with the grandparents and and talk to the kids about the family plan for discipleship. I think that's such a great thing to do. Would you say that there is a difference, though, in the way that grandparents are to disciple their grandchildren versus the way parents need to disciple? Because clearly you have a more hands-on role when it comes to the parents and the parents don't get to be, you know, the good guys with the cookies all the time the way that grandparents can. You know, so, so how would you differentiate between the role of parents and the role of grandparents, what would be some of the distinctions? So I call grandparents the adjunct servant of the parent, and that's not a slight to grandparents. It just recognizes that God's given parents the primary role, and grandparents are supportive help. Um, That's in the event that parents are discipling their children. In the event that they're not, um, then grandparents become a spiritual surrogate, Mm -hmm. and they can, um, you know, depending on what a parent will allow, um, can maybe step in in some capacity, whether that's bring their grandchildren to church, uh, whether that is a more hands-on discipleship role that a parent would generally have, but they may not because of, um, they're just, they're not fulfilling that. And there's plenty in that capacity. And some parents will give the grandparents that opportunity, and um, and they step into kind of your last line of spiritual defense in the family. Um, as far as the differences, uh, one of the big ones is discipline. Um, I see that primarily as a parent's role as far as some physical correction scripturally. There's never a command to grandparents, although the more time that grandparents spend with a grandchild, I think it becomes more... Um, appropriate to have some discipline plan with the parents. And so this to me is a delegated authority that a parent needs to give to a grandparent at that a conversation needs to happen to figure out what does that look like for our family? What are we comfortable with? Um, And so that's a biggie and it seems to have a whole spectrum of 
um, from what families are comfortable with. For sure. There's a lot more to talk about. We're going to pause for a short break. Dr. Josh Mulvihill with us talking about discipling your grandchildren. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. What's it like when a pregnant mom sees her baby for the first time? It all came down to the ultrasound. And I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible. A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a preborn center, she was still leaning towards abortion. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Ultrasounds save lives. Would you join with Preborn in helping moms to choose life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561, 855 855- Five six five twenty five sixty one. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. While you think about Psalm 92, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. And it really is an important thing for us to remember that grandparents play a very big role in the lives of their grandchildren. And we're discussing this with Dr. Josh Mulvihill, who's put out a great book on this, Discipling Your Grandchildren. Josh, we were talking before we went to the break about the role of the grandparents in discipleship of the grandchildren versus the parents and what's the differentiation. And you were mentioning that they're either adjunct servants to the parents if the parents are discipling and everybody's on the same page or spiritual surrogates of sorts if the parents are not discipling, which brings up an important question because a lot of families do have problems with this where you have the, the grandparents are strong Christians but maybe the parents have walked away from the faith or they're lukewarm. So then you have kids who are born into a home where maybe they're not even going to church, but the grandparents are terribly concerned that they come to know the Lord, yet they don't want to step on the feet of the the parents and, and go against the parents lest they lose contact. You know, that whole relational dynamic that can become awkward. How do you advise grandparents to deal with that kind of a situation if that's what they're facing in their family? Mm, yeah, my heart goes out to those families, and there are a lot of them. Um, generally, um, we kind of talk about the influence principle, and um, 
where this is um, not the direct uh, truth-telling, typically the kind of the hard-hitting, this, um, for the most part, that it seems that that kind of um, plan tends to backfire. And so we encourage more of the, when we look at the grace and truth spectrum, we look, we tend to encourage more on the grace side of things, um, that we attract more with honey <laughs> rather than the, than the hard hitting. And so um, not that that's going to be the end all answer, but it tends to keep the door open, the relationship established. And um, that tends to be the, you know, the, the, the component that can then potentially lead to some change and transformation in hearts and lives down the road. Um, and so we, you know, we, um, you know, we try to support grandparents in this, uh, recognizing that it's probably going to be a long and a bumpy road for many. Um, in the and in scripture, we see God had a lot of prodigals, and maybe some are listeners today. Uh, and the good news is, we have lots of examples from scripture on what to do in the case of a prodigal, and and God the Father is the primary example in that how he extends grace and always pursues Christ ate with sinners and the door was open and extending forgiveness. And, you know, we could go down the list of those kinds of principles. And those are the same kinds of things we want to extend. Um, of course, prayer is huge in this regard. You know, we can't change hearts. Only, only Christ can. And so we continue to bring our children before the Lord that aren't walking with him. And, um, you know, and we just pray for God's transformation in their lives. Um, and, you know, some adult children will obviously um, put some restrictions on grandparents, and um, and that becomes extremely difficult. For those that don't and give some opportunity, um, this is where I think grandparents can step in. And so um, I'd encourage, you know, that conversation to happen, uh, just as you mentioned, you know, a lot of times we're trying to dance around uh, landmines or figure out where the boundaries are. And sometimes I think it's just good to ask the question and um, have the conversation so that uh, those unknowns, you know, don't blow up in our face and then we come to regret it. Oh, yeah. And obviously you can still do things like pray for your grandchildren, be a good example, talk about going to church, you know, share scripture with them, whatever you're able to do without completely destroying the relationship with the parents. And that is a fine line to walk sometimes. But for those who do have cooperative parents working together with them to disciple the grandchildren, you have an awful lot of really good ideas. You had mentioned like the grandparents camp and grandparents ministries at churches. This is all great stuff. What about things like just basic sharing the gospel? I mean, we can't even necessarily assure that our grandchildren are hearing the gospel message fully if we just leave it to church or if we just leave it to Sunday school, because how do you know that your child was paying attention when the gospel was offered? So what what are some of the ways that grandparents can just really deal with a child and say, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You know, that's a great point, Janet. Actually, my, my research found that only one in four grandparents had verbally shared the gospel with their grandchildren. Mm. So I, I, um, I want to commend you for bringing that up, and I want to encourage a grandparent um, that's listening today, just because your grandchild hears the gospel in their home, or they go to a great church, or even a Christian school where they're hearing the gospel, it doesn't negate our responsibility to share that. And it's, you know, I never get tired of being reminded of the gospel 
and the, the good news that is um, found in that. And so your grandchildren need to hear that. Um, some, there's some wonderful tools. Uh, there's some great apps that can be downloaded for free on, um, you go to the app store and just, uh, you know, type in gospel, sharing the gospel in, um, you know, those kinds of things that come up. Um, we have used with our kids, the Avanti cube, it's just pictures. The colorless book has been wonderful. Um, Yes. You know, we've used uh, tons of tools like that. The Romans Road, we, have, uh, we sing the song Romans Road that t- talks through the different verses in Romans. Um, so different ways, that whether it's visual or audio, it just keeps the gospel in front. I know some grandparents have purchased some kind of gospel booklets, and they literally leave them out on their end table or coffee table, uh, and the grandchildren will come over to their home and oh, look at this, it looks attractive visually, and then pick it up and start reading, and boom, you walk right into a gospel conversation as grandchildren are are looking at it. Um, so I think to all those kinds of tools are just wonderful helps that we can utilize with uh, with the children in our lives. That's great. That is really great. And And even the relational things that you do with your grandchildren can be very important, things like cooking together. I mean, I remember having great memories of watching my grandma bake cookies and bake cakes, and she let me help. And those kinds of things, while you'd say, well, that's not very spiritual, that's building a relationship. That's building more and more love and closeness together, which is very important, I think, when you're trying to to disciple your grandchild. Yes, critical. In fact, um, research shows that the the frequency of contact between grandparents and grandchildren tends to tr- then translate into closer relationships. Um, so, um, the, you know, if you want a higher quality relationship, if you feel like, man, I just don't, I don't know why it's struggling with my adult children or my grandchildren, a simple, simple answer is in, increase the frequency. And um, there's been a ton of research that's actually been done on the amount of contact that grandparents have with grandchildren. And so um, for most grandparents, there's actually one out of two falls in the detached or passive um, category, which means they spend, they see their grandchildren less than one time per month. Hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, you you can have a, a, a relationship, but it's hard to have a really intimate relationship when there's just not a lot of contact. And it goes both ways. This isn't a, you know, this isn't a slap across the face to grandparents because I realize, you know, I, a lot of grandparents tell me, I just lament that my adult children don't call, that they seem too busy for me. So it goes both ways. Um, but um, sometimes if a grandparent does initiate in a greater capacity, what you just said is, critical, it just begins to develop those relationships, which then give the opportunity for the discipleship to occur. Yeah, that's right. What about older grandchildren? You know, you're thinking of kids who are, you know, K through eight or something like that, and you're having really great relationships with those kids in ways that you can relate to little kids. But what about when your grandchildren get older? What about when they're in high school and in college? Do you advocate different ways of grandparents discipling grandchildren at that age? Or how do things shift at that point? I love serving alongside one another, if possible. Um, I love... um, studying some books together, building a book library, you know, obviously a much more mature library with some, especially as they get into the teen years and the young adult years, can be reading some of the same books together and either 
um, connecting regularly or having coffee together uh, to discuss um, this one. Uh, grandmother sent this. I'll just read this little uh, testimony to you. This was her 17-year-old granddaughter sent this text to her, and it said, I've learned more about how to be a Christian by watching how you live your life, the way you pursue a life that reflects him in every way, whether that be through your marriage or simply talking to a man in a restaurant. For 17 years, I've watched you share the gospel shamelessly and point our family towards him. Wow. In every situation, good and bad, that I've ever been in, you've reminded me that it's not about me, that I serve a God that has a plan for me that ultimately leads to him. That's neat. That is really neat. Well, we've got to end it there, but Dr. Josh Mulvahill from Renewination, you can find them at renewination.org. And the name of the book is Discipling Your Grandchildren. Josh, so good to have had you here. Thank you so much for the great advice and great tips. Thanks, Janet. All right. God bless you. And thanks again for being here. And thank you for joining us on Janet Mufford today. We'll see you next time. 